Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to today's Federal Society virtual event. This afternoon, September 28th, 2022, we are honored to present the 2022 Mike Lewis Memorial Teleforum, Peace in Cyberspace, How It Was Lost and How to Restore It. My name is Jack Capizzi, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for any questions. If you have a question, please just type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle those as we can towards the end of today's program. Uh, with that, thank you all for being with us, and Vince, the floor is yours. Thank you, Jack. Uh, hello, and uh, thank all of you for sharing part of your day with us. Uh, this is the Mike Lewis Memorial Teleforum, now, now turned webinar. Uh, Mike was a naval aviator and then an international law professor. He took on some of the most controversial issues of the post 9-11 uh, era with wisdom and grace and, and, and clear writing. Uh, Mike had, a, had an amazing generosity of spirit he was a friend of almost everyone he met all across the spectrum uh, and a great friend of the Federalist Society. So uh, tragically, Mike left us too soon, dying from cancer. Every year we honor his life, his work and his spirit in a memorial event. So when the U.S. and other Western governments started to think about cyber aggression, their initial approach was to analogize to traditional war and the law of armed conflict. Back in 2012, one of the first principles the U.S. stated was that if a cyber attack had the same effect as a kinetic effect, one with bullets and bombs breaking things and, and hurting people, it would be considered a use of force under the U.N. Charter. Now, under U.S. doctrine, that would trigger a right of self-defense, including uh, cyber and kinetic responses. NATO took a similar approach and energetically analyzed how cyber attacks might be treated under the law of armed conflict. A group of academics have spent years drafting and refining something called the Talon Manual on International Law Applicable to Cyber Warfare. Some commentators question whether this is the best framework. They argue that cyber attacks are unique and in the real world, the actual responses of states should comprise what will eventually become the controlling customary international law. Uh, our panelists today are taking on a related question. Uh, most nation state cyber exploits do not and are not likely to reach the level of a, of a use of force. Still, they can be very disruptive and destructive, uh, yet most go without response and our adversaries are undeterred. What can we do about that? Our Speakers today, Lucas Kello and Eric Jensen, have some strong ideas on, on that subject. Lucas is an associate professor of international relations at Oxford and has too many other distinctions to mention. Uh, his upcoming book, Striking Back, The Ends of Peace in Cyberspace and How to Restore It, will be published by Yale University Press next month. Eric Jensen is a distinguished scholar and, and military practitioner. Uh, when, when in the army, he was uh, chief of the international law branch, uh, and he's the leading authority on cyber war. So with that, um, I'll be quiet from now on. 
maybe, and turn it over to the panelists, starting with Eric. <laughs> Don't be quiet, Vince. We like you engaged in these uh, topics. Uh, and Vince, it, it, thanks for, for uh, inviting me to be here. It's a great honor to be here, particularly in this webinar honoring uh, Mike Lewis. He was a great friend and colleague to me, so I'm grateful to have this chance to honor him. And Lucas, it's a great honor to be here with you. Uh, unlike the rest of the world, I got a sneak peek at your book. Uh, the rest of them won't get it for another month, and I found it fascinating. And I, and I hope in our discussion to uh, maybe highlight some of the key points that you raise in your book. But maybe it's best just to start with the question of what is it that, that made you want to write this book? Yeah, that's a great question to start with, Eric. And um, let me, uh, first of all, um, thank Vince for that very generous introduction. It's a real pleasure to speak to this forum um, today, not least in this mem um, memorial occasion. So thanks very much for having me here and greetings to uh, our audience uh, uh, from Oxford, England. So um, Eric, your question, what prompted me to write this book? It was, I think, a basic sense of frustration at the inability of existing Western security strategies to prevent significant cyber attacks, or at least to reduce their number and intensity, right? So this is one of the central diagnoses that the book provides is um, an analysis of this, uh, what I call the um, uh, conflict prevention uh, puzzle, right? It's, uh, it's the case, it has been the case for the last decade or more, that uh, Western nations' political, economic, and social interests have been repeatedly assailed through uh, actions in cyberspace. The political leaderships in the United States, Britain, France, European Union, NATO, and elsewhere have made it clear quite unequivocally that this activity is uh, too harmful, despite what Vince was saying quite accurately about it not meeting the existing legal threshold for a use of force or armed attack. It's nevertheless too damaging for political and other interests to be tolerated. And yet the offensive activity has continued unabated. So it seems to me that we have before us quite a spectacular case of conflict uh, prevention failure. And so the awareness of that major uh, shortcoming in policy and strategy prompted me to think quite seriously over the last uh, um, several years about what the nature and the root of the problem is and what could be done in order to address it. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And of course, none of us uh, spend much time reading the news each day without hearing about some kind of cyber aggression, uh, either by private or by uh, public parties uh, against uh, very lucrative sometimes targets. Uh, one of the issue, one of the points you make very early in uh, the book is this idea that one of the things that has transitioned this this ability to conduct cyber activities so effectively is kind of the move from the private information sphere of maybe the Cold War era to the public information sphere that was brought about by the development uh, and the use of the internet. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, that transition from 
from private to public and why the internet makes them such a target-rich environment? So can you say a little bit more first about uh, what, what that distinction between public and private? Well, so in your in your introduction to the book, you talk about how much of the information that states held uh, really closely was was private in nature. It was it was not open to the public? It wasn't accessible to the public writ large. You know, you'd have to break into some room and and open up some secret right. cabinet and pull it out and you know sneak out of the building. But but I think one of the points you made about this mm. and the, the benefit of the internet is it makes us all connected, but it also makes us all vulnerable. And that seems right. to be right. I understand. Yeah, your argument. Yeah, so what has happened quite extraordinarily over the last two decades or so is that um, enormous uh, aspects of human activity, political, economic, commercial, military, and other, have um, become transmittable in a digital form, right? They've become capturable through zeros and ones. I mean, all computer code reduces to zeros and ones, information stored as electrons. Now, it's true, yeah, I mean, the internet has been around for a very long time. It used to be called the ARPANET, right? It's been around since 1969, but it really wasn't until the mid and late 1990s that the internet became a broad social phenomenon and sort of permeated all aspects of modern society. That's been increasingly the case just about everywhere uh, in the world that you look. and. Uh, I mean, perhaps we don't have much time here to discuss those stages of development and expansion, but one of the most important ones has been the explosion of social media, right, since the early 2000s. Because what that's done is it's created a digital platform for political discourse to take place. And so now, suddenly, people who can never communicate with each other are able to do so almost costlessly and effortlessly. Right. And moreover, it's become very difficult for various um, reasons, often to attribute the identity of the participants in political discussion and also their location. What does that mean? That means that our our central forms of political discussion in democracies for whatever contentious issue that might arise, for example, in the context of the upcoming term elections in the United States, are now susceptible to intervention by all kinds of actors, including very remote and often surreptitious actors, right, that might have political or geopolitical motives that might not be known to us. So I think that's that's one of the central challenges, right, in, um, in carrying out uh, security strategies in this space has been that broad, vast opening of political discussion, right? So, uh, as yeah. a result of the explosion of the medium, right? This this newly uh, enriched target uh, environment where there's lots more targets, lots more ways to emphasize and, and and to to get your point across, even if you're a nefarious actor. I think it's a great point. Um, so you uh, you are not a fan though of the current international law. Uh, structure. So, I, you know, Vince introduced the idea of the Talon Manual. I was one of the experts in the Talon Manual group. I'm kind of a fan of international law. I teach international law, but but Lucas, you're not such a fan of international law, at least as a framework to deal with this current problem. Or, or maybe I I should I'm misquoting you, but it, but you mm-hmm. at least think that over the past decade, international law as a framework has proven itself ineffective. Maybe is that a better way to say it? So yeah, I yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell, I mean, tell me more about that. For those of us who are fans of the legal system, wh- where is it failing? 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And it's not that I'm not a fan of the legal system. Rather, it's that I think the legal system has um, become, in a way, uh, inapplicable or ineffective in dealing with the forms of technological aggression that we've witnessed an expansion of um, as a consequence of the expansion of the Internet and cyberspace. That's why that's that's one of the central arguments uh, of the book. And uh, so the main reason for that uh, is that the legal system, much like security doctrine in Western nations, and this is a point where legal doctrine and security doctrine uh, are quite closely aligned, the legal system has uh, traditionally prioritized these binary notions of peace and war. Right? So war has a very clear definition under international law and the customs of diplomacy. Right? It's um, customarily defined as a significant physical destruction of property and loss of life. And uh, international law currently supplies two related notions to capture that kind of activity, armed attack and use of force. These are notions that are clearly codified in international treaties, such as the UN uh, Charter and its various principles. Right? And then, so you've got one set of uh, situations and offensive and rivalrous activity, which is denoted by or captured by those uh, two notions. And then on the other side of the binary construct, you have peacetime competition, right? Now, the problem is that um, peace is not a concept that is clearly defined under international law. Right? I think that's one of the one of the one of the problems of the international system is that it doesn't really define peace. Now, customarily, what has that meant? It's meant that peace is essentially interpreted as the absence of war. The lack of war, right, yeah. The lack of war. And you have political thinkers going all the way back at least to Thomas Hobbes, for example, who indeed described life in the international jungle as a state of war. Not because he meant that war always happens, but rather because even when there isn't a situation of war, it can at any time break out. Like that's one of the basic realities of the anarchic international system, right? So he and other political thinkers have uh, described the world in which uh, international affairs alternates between a situation in which war is switched on and war is switched off. So again, reflective of this binary construction, right, that the international system conveys. Right. Here's the problem, though, Eric. Go ahead. The problem is that what we have seen is by way of the expansion of new technologies, we've seen the expansion of the middle of the spectrum of conflict. This is a term that I coined in my last book, The Virtual Weapon and International Order, which was published in 2017. And the term is unpeace. What do I mean by that? I mean mid-spectrum activity that is not physically violent or fatal and therefore isn't warlike, but that is too damaging to political, social, and economic interests to be treated as tolerable peacetime activity, right? And after all, the, the, the legal system allows all kinds of uh, economic and other forms of competition to take place within a peacetime, right? Things like economic sanctions, right? But now what these technologies have made possible is, as I was um, uh, indicating earlier, is direct intervention within democratic context in order to disrupt elections, right? To sow political and social divisions, 
to paralyze even the small economy and financial infrastructures of a small nation, like uh, as we saw in the distributed denial of service attacks against Estonia in 2007, which was, by the way, the, the world's very first international cyber crisis. Right? And the problem, Eric, is that the legal system says very little about that middle of the spectrum. Right? So it says a lot about how nations can react under the principle, for example, of self-defense within the UN Charter to acts of armed attack or use of force. The domestic penal codes say a lot about what can be done within national jurisdictions to penalize criminal activity, things like financial fraud right, or, or uh, hacking into crypto asset exchanges. Right. This is this is activity that is not deemed under international law to be warlike and that is quite clearly penalized within uh, most domestic penal codes in the in the world. The problem, of course, is that if the perpetrators reside in a foreign jurisdiction and live under the protection of a foreign state, right, whose uh, interests and purposes they serve, then the domestic criminal code doesn't really help you out. Right, and so we're stuck to summarize to to sum up this this commentary. We're stuck in a situation that I think the uh, CEO of Sony Pictures Entertainment, Michael Linton, um, very aptly uh, captured in 2014. Well, of course, that was the year that his company suffered a major hack by uh, North Korea's Lazarus Group, and he said, "Look, if you are a CEO or a decision maker." and you find yourself in this situation that I have described as unpeace, then his words, there is no playbook. Right? There's no clear playbook within the legal and normative system that prescribes clear actions for how to respond. And I think that is the essence of the problem that strategists face today. Right, so I think, I think you know, you hear strategists talking about this idea of great power competition, and that may be the way they would deal with the jungle as such of, of international community relations. But your point is that even in great power competition, the only legal paradigms are either the peace paradigm or the war paradigm, right? And so that as you ratchet closer and closer to that war paradigm, the legal regime doesn't necessarily change sufficiently to give you enough responses, right? Now, some might say, I mean, sympathizers to international law uh, might say to you, Lucas, look, a lot of what goes on, though, cyber stuff is really just espionage. I mean, it may be espionage by a different vehicle. It may be happening over the Internet. I get that. But it's really still just espionage. And espionage has been going on for, you know, ever since the world was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there is a lot to do with espionage. It's some of the things you mentioned, sanctions, et cetera, diplomatic demarches, that kind of stuff throwing diplomats out of countries. Um, why is that why why is that paradigm that has worked for millennia no longer sufficient? Uh, another very good question. Analysts have grappled uh, with it recently. It's a question that I also uh, diagnose in the book. So I think that the the con the conventional logic of espionage doesn't adequately capture the problem before us. And that has to do with the ways in which um, cyberspace and the internet have radically, I think, fundamentally altered the very nature of espionage. I mean, think about how espionage traditionally worked. You broke into the information space 
uh, analog information space of an adversary. You seized whatever prized military, industrial, or diplomatic secret that you were after. And you very quietly, right, took it home and used it for whatever purpose um, it was useful for. And the whole idea was the secrecy behind it of your whole um, intrusion, right? Because, I mean, if once uh, it became known that, um, that the information was compromised or once the secrets are shared too widely, well, you, you get into the classic um, intelligence equities problem and the stolen information that you have has lost value. Cyberspace and the internet have radically changed that. We saw that in 2016 very plainly in the uh, context of the very contentious presidential election in the United States, right? So I'm referring here to the hack uh, by the Russian uh, GRU, which is the, uh, a military unit uh, of the Democratic Party leadership's email records, right? So if you recall that, that election, there were uh, two uh, quite a contentious um, contest within the Democratic Party for the party's nomination, right? We had uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton there was suspicion within the Democratic Party that the leadership was um, uh, secretly favoring Clinton over Sanders. And what the Russians very, very ably did was they released three days before the Democratic Party convention, a trove of stolen emails of the DNC, proving, in fact, those suspicions correct. Now, it's unprovable. We'll never be able to know whether a sufficient number of disgruntled Bernie Sanders supporters did not show up on November 3rd of that year to vote for Hillary Clinton, and therefore that's why Trump won that election. We can't prove that. But let's recall that that was a very close election in the Electoral College. In some of the swing states, right, the election was lost by only tens, uh, a few tens of thousands of votes. So I think it's open to a legitimate question. It's plausible that had the Russians not carried out that leak, right, of the emails, that um, Hillary Clinton could have won. Now, this, I think, takes us right back to the changing nature of espionage, because what we saw there, right, that's, a, that's what, what the Russians call a compromise operation. And what we saw there was a very different kind of espionage than, than the one that we see in the conventional world, right? We saw that the Russians seized this private and politically sensitive information, and, and instead of closely guarding those secrets, they publicly released them at a time in a moment that was calculated to cause maximum political impact in an adversary's um, political system. And that's, that was exactly the point, to make a public spectacle of stolen information, which is why I think that the conventional logic of espionage doesn't take as far, because it doesn't really capture this new phenomenon. Okay, so I, and I want to come back to that uh, to that example, and, and maybe ask you what you think the correct responses might have been by the United States that they didn't do. But before you do that, I want to just read one one uh, quote about unpeace from your book, because I, I again this this idea of unpeace I think is really intriguing. You say, uh, "quote Unpeace has become a more relevant force of change in international politics than war itself." That's a pretty strong statement. Nations can use cyberspace to achieve some of the political and strategic objectives of war, interfering with another nation's governmental institutions, disrupting its economy or financial system, some of the things you've mentioned before, seizing its military and financial assets, crippling its public administration and communications infrastructure, disrupting its civilian power supply, and so on, all without firing a shot. Uh, 
I just want to to note again. I want to come back to unpeace, but I just want to note that mm-hmm. the unpeace doesn't just or, or the situation of cyber doesn't just give that power to states, but it gives that power to individuals, mm-hmm. to um, transnational criminal organizations, to terrorist organizations. So it's it's. I mean, the 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 difficulty you're highlighting doesn't only apply to Russia hacking the United States. It applies to lots of entities and individuals who, because cyber devolves state-level violence to the individual level, can take some of these actions, right? Um, I mean, isn't that really part of your point here, that we should be worried on a much grander scale? No, absolutely. And and, and uh, I do have, I think, some comments in relation to what you were saying um, to the growing uh, significance of what I call unpeace within uh, international affairs and geopolitics more broadly that I think we we, we really uh, should touch upon, especially in light of what's going on in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, but to answer your your question here, no, I think absolutely one of one of the truly and perhaps in a way most transforming aspects of what I call and others call the cyber revolution is precisely the way that it has empowered actors that have traditionally um, been alien to the state system. I mean, if you look at the way that international diplomacy is architected, right? Membership in the General Assembly, the Security Council, the various committees and subcommittees. It's been designed um, since the middle of the last century with, it seems, the explicit purpose of keeping non-state actors outside of the high tables of world affairs. Now, that's a real problem in an age in which we live, right? Because we live in an age in which um, at least the large multinational technology companies, whether they like it or not, are geopolitically relevant players. And I think one of the major challenges for uh, CEOs and corporate leaderships today is coming to grips with that reality, which I think is an inescapable reality, right? Um, because that doesn't mean that corporations like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, the semiconductor uh, producers, and so forth, have to explicitly behave like nations or, or geopolitical actors. That doesn't mean that they necessarily have to pick explicitly sides in large international uh, contentions and conflicts, over, although some of them some of do. Them We've seen Microsoft yes. carrying out some, and uh, I think, extremely informative reporting of uh, events on the ground in Ukraine. It's been a real boon to, to us researchers. What it does mean, though, is that those companies do have a central role to play right on the international scene. Now, that presents problems, especially for democratic nations. Because centralized political systems, like in uh, like Russia's or, or China's, um, which of course have uh, vibrant uh, private sectors. I mean, China's native technology industry has really burgeoned. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's it, China has you know China has uh, pursued technological prowess uh, during much of the last uh, two or three decades uh, through things like um, uh, industrial and commercial espionage. China doesn't really need to do that anymore at least not as much as before. They really have vibrant, um, highly capable technology industries of their own, right? Companies like um, Huawei and others, right? But within a centralized political system, the tools available to national security planners for aligning 
public and private sector interests, when they diverge, are uh, much greater, and of course they include coercive tools, than one finds in democratic contexts. Right? We saw this very clearly in uh, 2015 in the uh, San Bernardino uh, terrorist case, right, where the FBI presented um, Apple a court uh, a court order yeah. to decrypt one of the deceased terrorist iPhones, and Tim Cook famously uh, got on the web and, and wrote two blog posts explaining why he wouldn't do that. Think about how extraordinary that situation was. Yeah. For a moment, you had a multinational company dictating to the most powerful government in the world which of two seemingly competing goods should prevail a public good in the protection against terrorism and a private good right protecting the bottom line of the company and the interests right of the um of, of the apple uh, ecosystem right that to me was an extraordinary situation and you know it, it's it's a it's a a situation that carries over to the protection of the voting infrastructure largely owned and operated by the private sector to the protection of the social media platforms that we were discussing that are so prominent within political discussion today and i can't think of a time in history and i've thought um uh, long and far where the private sector has played such an important role in the provision of national security as in our own times. And so I think countries, uh, again, especially um, uh, democratic countries, have um, a lot of uh, challenges on their hands in terms of figuring out new and more effective relationships between the public and the private sector in order to address um, uh, the security uh, problems that have been uh, that have been expanded. Yeah, great points. Um, I mean, you know, kind of the other side of the coin of what you uh, were saying, now uh, some Western countries are unable to limit the role that these multinational corporations are playing in the conflict in Ukraine, for example. Some may be doing things that those countries wouldn't actually uh, prefer that they do. So it's, it's. I mean, the, the freedom with which these multinational corporations work in this space is, is you're right, I think, uh, something that causes governments to pause. Um, what I, I, I want to go back now to the question I was going to ask earlier, and I'm, I, I see a hand by Steve Waxman. I'm going to come to you after this, Steve, so get ready. Uh, so, Lucas, what, let's just assume that everything you're saying is right. Um, what should the United States have done in response to the DNC hack that they didn't do? What should they have yeah. done? Well, um, let's begin the diagnosis with um, a brief analysis of what was done and why that was wrong. Right. Or at least um, ineffective. So what we saw happen was um, the expulsion of I think it was a few dozen uh, Russian diplomats. Right. Which I suppose that's a big deal for those diplomats and their families. Uh, it carried uh, quite a bit of symbolism within the world of diplomacy. Did it, however, achieve what the policy should have attempted to achieve, which was changing the calculus in Moscow in, in uh, support of carrying out right, interventions of this kind, right? In, in other words, did it succeed at deterrence? Convincing the other side that the gains to be had from this kind of activity are less than the cost of carrying it out, right? And that cost includes, of course, and perhaps centrally, the imposition of costs um, through some kind of punishment. And again, so this is where I think the 
uh, diplomatic expulsions were uh, not credible and unconvincing. And one can understand why it was so difficult right, for policymakers and decision makers in Washington to figure this out. Because recall, again, this was not uh, a conventional right use of force. Um, and yet it was highly damaging, one could argue, I have argued, uh, to the United States political interests, right? And so when, when you can almost visualize, you know, a meeting of the National Security Council, the decision makers, they turn to the international rule book, they turn to their own internal doctrinal rule books, they look for a chapter within those rule books that prescribes a clear and proportionate response to uh, a major political hacking event, and they don't find such a chapter, right? So it, it creates, I think, a situation of um, confusion and vagueness. What we also saw was uh, a lot of noise about how these kinds of actions and others of, uh, uh, like it were against the rules-based international order. And there, again, we have a problem because there is no rules-based international order or consensus when it comes to the interpretation of these actions, right? And again, that's one of the fundamental problems. So what that means prescriptively is that, and this gets more to your question, is that we should perhaps set aside the mantra of law and norms, which, which I label cyber legalism, because they're not going to be persuasive to regimes that do not share our political values and have a very different interpretation of the applicability of international law and norms in this space. And instead, as I argue in the book, what we should seek to do is affect the material interests of those geopolitical adversaries in order to change that cost calculus. And there are various ways that one can do that. And, and, and I spend, um, uh, uh, I dedicate a whole chapter um, and, and well, others too, in terms of applying it in different contexts. But what I suggest is this, I propose this a new doctrine of punctuated deterrence. And uh, well, I, I can say a bit more about it here, but you can read all about it in the book. <laughs> nice teaser. Uh, I do want to get to punctuated deterrence because I found that as a fascinating idea. And maybe we'll, we'll coax a little more out of you than you've given us so far. But I see, Steve, your hand is down. Does that mean you're ready to speak or you or I misread your hand? If, if you got a question, Steve, go ahead and unmute. and. Uh, and uh, yes. Can you hear me? We can hear you, Steve. Go ahead. Ask okay. Question. Um, my, my question, Professor, is um, could we think of uh, today's uh, cyber activity and attacks by groups and even nation states uh, almost synonymous with previous, like when you think of CIA covert activities uh, in the past with even up to and including regime change, uh, there aren't any really any rules on that. So can't cyber, act, cyber you know, hacks and those kind of things be thought of along those lines? <clears throat> yeah, it's great. Great point, Steve. Great historical reference. Thanks. So, Lucas, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great question, and I um, began to answer it in my earlier comments about the um, uh, logic of intelligence gathering, right? Applying the problems of applying it in this space. So, I think I think what I understand to be one of the premises of your question is correct. In other words, this kind of thing, right? Political intrusions into other countries, um, uh, elections, and, and governments and regimes and so forth, isn't new. 
It's been happening for a uh, very long time. But what has fundamentally changed is the medium through which that kind of intrusion can happen. Right. And many vastly more uh, uh, opportunities for intrusion are available today. Right. And when you think about the scope of the action that can take place, I mean, because we're talking about everything from, uh, well, what are the various ways that one could disrupt an election? You could hack into the voter registration systems in order to, for example, corrupt the data of a certain demographic that has been known historically and according to polls to support a particular candidate that you want to see lose, you as, the, as a foreign intervener, right? You could hack into the vote counting machines in order to alter directly the tally uh, of the votes. This concern uh, prompted the Dutch authorities, for example, in March of 2017, to uh, count every vote by hand in a, in a national election that they had uh, at the time in that country. Right? Uh, you could, you wouldn't even necessarily have to successfully alter or corrupt the data in the registries or in um, the vote counting. Right? You, if you simply demonstrate convincingly that a foreign actor has inserted itself into that infrastructure, that in itself could be sufficient in our highly polarized times to lead to all kinds of perceptions of illegitimacy in the outcome. I mean, we're seeing this currently play out in Brazil, right, in the context of the presidential election in that country. A lot of concern about the hackability of the voting infrastructure there, right? And so when I uh, think about that kind of covert and maybe not so covert uh, activity, and I compare it with traditional, say, CIA attempts to intervene in uh, in a foreign government. It seems to me that the scope and the scale and the remoteness uh, of the action is um, is not really comparable, and it represents not a different in degree, but rather a different in kind. We are dealing with a, I think, a fundamentally different kind of espionage activity than we saw previously. Okay, and, and I might just add that at least ABC reports that, that despite all that DNC hacking and everything that led up to it, the only time that President Obama called President Putin uh, was when the FBI told him that they were hacking into voting machines where they could actually change the vote. So at least for President Obama, that was where he was willing to draw the line, right? Mm. But but I mean, I think your your point that how we categorize this history may change how we view this or may affect how we view our answer to that question. Um, so traditional legal types like myself might say, well, look, the reason you're focused too much on the medium and we think that really international law is focused on the effects and that the effects of tampering with an election are the same, whether it's the covert CIA op or whether it's the hack. Um, again, your differentiation of that would be the scale, the, the scope of what that cyber platform brings and how that affects and can increase uh, exponentially the impact yeah. of that work. No, that's a great point, and 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 mm. it certainly is the case um, that international law, in terms of applying it, you know, usually uh, legal scholars and practitioners focus on the effects rather than the modality of whatever action um, is being considered, right? And uh, Vince, in his introduction, referred to what is often labeled the equivalence principle, right? The idea that if the effects 
right, the physically destructive and fatal effects of a cyber attack meet the legal criteria of an armed attack or, or, or a use of force, then it doesn't matter that the action uh, traveled through the virtual medium, right? It had effects that were consonant with a conventional act of war and therefore, according to international law and diplomacy, should be and can be treated right that way. Uh, the problem is that we haven't seen yet such a cyber attack take place. If and when we do see it, it's going to be an easy case in terms of the application of international law for precisely uh, the reasons uh, you suggest uh, in your question, Eric, right? Because that's when we can bring out our legal and doctrinal rule books and we can search for the chapter that prescribes a response to a use of force or an armed attack. Right. Um, but what we what we haven't yet seen is precisely that uh, criteria being met within cyberspace. And I think this is something that the uh, main geopolitical contenders of the United States, Britain and other partner countries understand very well. And as I argue in my book, I think they hold a, a doctrinal edge when it comes to understanding the uh, realm of unpeace and how to maneuver within it. Because I think they understand two things better than we do. First, they understand the growing realm of possible action within this space. I mean, if, you, if the, the Russians have been the masters of political subversion through cyberspace, they've shown that um, repeatedly. They're failing spectacularly on the conventional battlefield in Ukraine, right? But within cyberspace, I think they've been very adept. And um, they also, secondly, understand, I think, better than we do our own limits, because they know that no matter how damaging politically or economically their actions are, so long as those consequences don't pass the effects test that you mentioned, we in Western capitals are going to really struggle to come up with a response. And so that's, I think, the situation um, that we're in and why I argue that this, this uh, doctrinal race of cyberspace is being won in Russia and in China, perhaps in other countries, even though here in the West, we still have a uh, technological edge. Okay, great. I, I want to drag you back to punctuated deterrence uh, because I really want to ask you about that. It's such an interesting idea. But uh, but we've got a question here from Adam. Adam, do you want to unmute and ask your question or do you want me just to read it out of the Q&A? Uh, sure. Go ahead, Adam. Okay, great. I appreciate you taking the question. Uh, so the Talon Manual is predicated on the fundamental principle of sovereignty. Um, and as and as I, I as I read it, and not only territorial sovereignty, but also sovereignty to define internal norms and international responsibilities. By contrast, classical international law has long had a category for necessary international norms, which sovereigns are not competent to redefine, such as norms against theft and rights to make justified appraisals and limitations on those rights and so forth. So my question is: Is the contemporary embrace of a comprehensive lawmaking sovereignty a problem? insofar as it enables states to deny their legal responsibilities for cyber conflict prevention and refuse uh, their consent to rules that would prohibit cyber aggression. Yeah. So Adam, are you an international lawyer? I'm just a law professor. <laughs> okay, no. I, uh, Come on now, Adam. I, I, 
I gathered that a legal mind was at work here in the, um, in the articulation of that uh, yeah. of that expert question. Let, let me let me address this 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 problem of applying the principle of sovereignty in the space because I think it's hugely problematic. Right. Um, the problem that I see is that when it comes to the principle of sovereignty, the international uh, rulebook also tri- prioritizes the physical over the virtual world. Right. And what I mean by that, it prioritizes the violation of countries' um, uh, geographic soil. Right. Things like the um, uh, seizure of Crimea by Russian troops in 2014, the reinvasion of Ukraine uh, earlier this year. Right. So the physical presence of foreign uh, troops within the recognized territory of another state. What it's much more ambiguous on is the question of whether intrusions, virtual ones, into the information space of other countries constitutes a violation of the sovereignty regime under international law. Here again, we have uh, a lot of disagreement because what's interesting about the legal perspective of uh, Russia and China so far um, as I uh, interpret it, is that they have been uh, staunch proponents of cyber sovereignty. The idea that nations have a right to uh, oversee and control even their domestic information spaces uh, as they wish. Right. So we see that it, Russia and China both operate a vast apparatus of internet surveillance and a censorship. Right, which uh, is a reflection of a very strong reading of the notion of cyber sovereignty. But what they clearly haven't done is translated that doctrine into an understanding that they and other countries cannot intrude upon uh, democratic elections abroad. Because clearly they've been, I mean, Russia, as I noted, is, has been a persistent actor in that regard. We're seeing increasing uh, intrusions within election contests by Chinese actors within Asia Pacific, right? Especially, unsurprisingly, in Taiwan. So China is growing more assertive in that regard as well. It's taking pages off um, uh, the Russian playbook in that regard. Uh, and so this is this is it's an interesting uh, dichotomy within Russian and Chinese understanding of sovereignty in the space. Because again, they're they're very restrictive when it comes to uh, arguing that countries get to you know uh, organize their domestic int- internet the way they want, free from the pressures of the uh, of the foreign uh, internet companies and foreign governments that push uh, for a uh, uh, the model of an open internet. But they say very little in terms of uh, curtailing intrusions by them into democratic contests. And the fact that those countries, Russia in particular, has been able to maneuver so expertly between these potentially contradictory positions, I think it really is a reflection of the um, uh, mastery, I think, that they have um, uh, over uh, cyber activity. That's a great answer, Lucas. Okay, so I mean, it's not just China and Russia, right? I mean, there's even disagreement on this in the West. The Dutch and the French have very strong statements about sovereignty. The UK is kind of taking a different approach and said violation of sovereignty isn't in and of itself a violation of international law. Instead, it has to be a prohibited intervention, which means a coercive 
some some coercion against the domain reservation. So there's there's disagreement about this in the West, which I think highlights uh, to some degree your point, Lucas. Now we've had a couple of great questions from the from the audience. Feel free if you have more questions to to send them through the Q and A. And I'm hoping Vince will jump in here at some point because he always has great questions. But Lucas, I want to drag you back to punctuated deterrence. <laughs> so deterrence. I mean, there, there's been lots of talk about deterrence in the cyber realm, right? I mean, we, we can't think of deterrence in this. It's clear we can't think of deterrence in the cyber uh, realm the same way we thought of it in the Cold War. That's just not going to be uh, the way that deterrence is going to work. But people have thrown out different ideas about resilience and ag agility and all these other ways to, to equate deterrence. You've got this idea of punctuated deterrence. Tell us what you're willing to without divulging too much from the book so your publisher schwacks you. But but tell us what, what you can about this, because I think it's a really interesting point. So I began to out outline the basic principles of punctuated deterrence in my last book, and um, I expound upon them um, much more extensively in this book. And punctuated deterrence is my attempt prescriptively to save the sick patient of deterrence within cyberspace, which uh, some analysts are uh, all too happy to uh, declare dead. Right. So, the, for example, the originators and advocates of the U.S. doctrine of persistent engagement uh, within the United States. Right. It's one of the central doctrinal planks of U.S. Cyber Command today. I think it's uh, it represents a very important and positive development in the uh, evolution of a U.S. cyber strategy. One problem that I see with it, though, is that uh, some of the proponents see it as a replacement of deterrence which they argue is um, unrescuable. So I, of course, disagree with that notion. And so what I argue in the book is that deterrence in cyberspace can work more effectively, more successfully, if we do two basic things. One is to carry out a sterner and more credible punishment. Right? And I outline a series of uh, principles about how that could be done. Right. One of them is the idea that you should treat the uh, adversary's actions as uh, a series of actions or campaigns rather than as isolated um, incidents, which is what, if you look at the origins of deterrence theory in the nuclear era, teaches you to do. Right? You, you treat single nuclear attacks or incidents right as um, in their own merit. That doesn't really make sense. Right in a realm where you have so much activity, none of it so far meeting the threshold of traditional response, and yet having cumulatively significant effects for our for our political systems and economies. And so, what I prescribe in the book is that we have to sum up the accumulating effects of these um, uh, cyber campaigns, and then seek to respond to them in their totalities rather than figuring out, you know, how do we respond to individual incidents, which if anything is um, uh, uh, given the number of, the, of, of, of incidents is, is, is a distributed denial of service attack on the civil service, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I also, I, I don't have time to get into the details here, but I discuss how uh, countries could try to uh, carry out more effective and more creative issue linkage Right. So linking state behavior within cyberspace to, uh, for example, negotiations for conventional forces uh, framework in Europe, even negotiations over 
uh, nuclear arms limitation, linking it to economic sanctions. And here I'm, I'm, I'm referring to what I call broad spectrum economic sanctions, not the kinds of targeted financial penalties that we've seen the Department of uh, Justice issue against specific Russian operatives and organizations. Right. I think recalling my earlier comments about the domestic um, uh, criminal code, I think don't, those don't have um, much of a chance of succeeding. Right. I also prescribe much greater attention to what I call um, uh, the virtual integrity of the political system. This is something of a puzzle because we're not used to in the West of thinking about what the Russians and the Chinese call information security. Right. In other words, controlling the flow of uh, domestic channels of information, especially over the internet, because we pride ourselves very rightly on the openness of the free exchange of ideas. And so for us, it's, it, it seems almost reprehensible to our values to think about information security. But what the DNC hack and other similar incidents have shown us is that we have to take information security very seriously and come up with uh, some kind of a regime of response. Okay. Um, another thing very briefly that we could do, which goes beyond uh, a sterner response to affect material interest, is um, smarter denial, right? In other words, coming up through the use of new technologies with techniques that decrease the attractors and the intruders' expect expectations of success. So I devote a whole chapter to the Estonian experiment of data embassies, which is their attempt to create uh, backup cloud services for essential government functions and registries, everything from the land registry to the population registry, tax systems, and so forth. Estonia, of course, is a highly digitized um, uh, society. And creating backup servers in foreign jurisdictions, hence the label um, data embassies. So they set up data embassies. They're currently operating in Luxembourg. Um, other countries have started to think about this too. This, by the way, creates opportunities, very good ones for the private sector to become involved in that effort. And so the idea is that if you can back up your essential government services and infrastructure in a foreign cloud, that could very well affect the expectation of foreign hackers to um, uh, successfully interfere in your system. Yeah, great point. I, I loved your point about the accumulation theory. I mean, it's what Sean Watts calls death by a thousand cyber pinpricks, right? This is a this is a really classic uh, method of attack. Um, all right, so we've got, I think, time for one more question. This is from Victoria Sutton. Uh, if this is the Vicky Sutton, who's my friend, this is going to be a really good question. Are you out there, Victoria Sutton? All right, can you unmute and ask your question? Hi. Hi, yes, I am here. Oh, um, it's my friend. Okay, go ahead and ask a great question. <laughs> yes, um, and um, so until we're able to attribute an attack to a state party, we're never going to get to an international forum for sanctions. For example, we have China always working through individuals, but we can, we can indict them, but we never get to the state actor. Isn't that true? Yeah. So, so, and, and, and I guess the, the, the fundamental question you're laying out there is, does it do us any good if all we do is get the pawn and the state gets off scot-free, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Lucas, uh, you've talked a little bit about that, but can you address that maybe a little more fully? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And it's one of the other challenges 
in coming up with uh, an effective, uh, proportionate, and also legitimate response in this space. It's the attributional difficulties, right? It's it's the the difficulty that one as a victim of a major incident often encounters in um, identifying the uh, location and identity of the attacker. But but here's the thing, Victoria. There is this other principle that we haven't yet discussed, but should, of state responsibility. Right? It's a very well-established principle in international law, and it basically stipulates that governments are responsible for the harmful activity of emanating from within their jurisdictions. Right, And so what that means is that, in principle, you don't necessarily need to prove that it was a Russian state actor who directly right, uh, interfered in your elections or, or, or crippled one of your um, 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 oil and gas infrastructures or whatever it is. It's sufficient merely to prove, if you can do it forensically, that the actors were operating from within the jurisdiction of Russia or whatever country uh, in question, and that the authorities, despite that knowledge, right, which which you as the victim country may well uh, present to them, uh, took no action, essentially tolerated it. And so under the principle of state responsibility, right, that makes um, that government at least um, uh, partly responsible for the action and therefore susceptible to um, some kind of a punitive response. And, and here, Eric, I do want to, I have an important note to add here about the, the, the punishment dimension of what I discussed, right? Because some people may very well misinterpret this book, right? And I was very careful not to write it as a manual for carry, how to carry out offensive strategy in cyberspace. Although some, some uh, security planners and strategists might fight insights for how to do that, right? The book rather is an attempt to shore up the strategic defense. In other words, carrying out more credible responses and shoring up defenses through new technologies in order to prevent an, cyber attacks and or at least to reduce their number and diminish their intensity. So this is a book about increasing stability and restoring peace to at least some essential quarters of cyberspace. And I think that has to be emphasized in case in case my argument and intent is misread or misread. Uh, misread. Yeah, Lucas, that's, I'm glad you made that point at the end. And I loved your response to, to Vicky. It's hard for me to end on that. Uh, when you lay out that cyber due diligence as a part of state responsibility uh, issue, and I can't delve deeper into that. But Vince, I think our time is almost spent, so I'll pass it back over to you. And Lucas, that was great, thanks. Yes, both uh, uh, Lucas and, and Eric, that was a, a terrific discussion about what's probably the most important uh, issue in cybersecurity today. Uh, thank you. Jack, anything? Fantastic. Thank you all. Uh, no, finally, on behalf of the Federal Society, thank you all for joining us today. Um, we always welcome listener feedback at info at fedsoc.org. Um, as always, please keep an eye on our website for future events. And thanks again for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.